welcome to the Student Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Tanya Rutherford from Learn, Grow, Become, where we work with universities and higher education providers to empower mature age and part-time students to gain the mindset, the strategies, and the confidence to succeed in their studies. Welcome. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Student Experience Podcast. Today, we have Josh Josh Farr joining us. Josh originally trained as an engineer before being drawn into a life of innovation, entrepreneurship, and student leadership development. Josh is the founder and facilitator of Campus Consultancy, where he works with university student leaders to empower them through the development of emotional intelligence and entrepreneurship skills, as well as building teamwork and fostering positive student engagement on campus. Josh also has experience as an entrepreneur in residence, a lecturer for social enterprise incubator, as well as being a TEDx speaker on two occasions. Welcome, Josh. Thanks for having me. No worries. To start us off today, can you share some of your insight into the value of social enterprise opportunities for enhancing student learning experience? Definitely. So social enterprise is so, so valuable. It's in a nutshell, and there's no legal definition in Australia, so we already get into the complexity of it. Uh, But think business for good. So any business that is trying to do good. And one of the real benefits here is, one, it's what students are leaning towards. So there's no shortage of reports that are, you might see students who are buying uh, toilet paper and talking about who gives a crap, or they might be buying water bottles or body lotion from Thank You, wearing Tom's shoes. They're kind of the well-known ones, but there's a whole community and and sort of business river that flows underneath that. Um, they're popping up left, right, and center. And students, particularly younger generations, really care about um, care about the ideas and the values, the intrinsic values of social enterprise. So on one side, it's really appealing to students. Students want to do good. They're more aware of the UN SDGs uh, as a generation. And on the second side of it, from an education standpoint or an engagement standpoint, it lets students actually apply the skills they're learning directly or indirectly in class or in their assignments or in their tutes or in their clubs or in their mentoring programs. And it gives students a chance to say, to sort of learn the realities of the real world. You know, at university, I always tell students, you know, you're paying to be here. And in the workforce, you get paid to be there. And it's a fundamental shift in mindset. So the question in social enterprise that we pose is, you can still do good and be paid to be there. And in fact, these social enterprises that make the biggest impact are the ones that they run a tight and very profitable P&L, but they have purpose and values at the core of what they do. And I think thinking about, um, you know, the employability and the global mindset that we want and all the adaptability and all those sort of workplace graduate attribute skills that we want to have there's so much of that is embedded in that understanding purpose and you know aligning yourself to what you're trying to achieve most definitely and it just asks students to or it challenges students to ask better questions it asks them to go a little bit deeper and to really learn and empathize with the customer i would say entrepreneur entrepreneurship is rooted in empathy the first principle of it is empathy And as we look around at what's in the news and what's on social media and as we're recording this, what's happening with coronavirus, we need empathy in 2020 more than ever before. I think that'll probably be true each year coming. So anything that can get students to step outside of their experience 
into somebody else's experience, think about what they might be thinking, feeling what they might be feeling. And as you say, yeah, use that global mindset um, and applying it here at home too. Um, there's lots of really great social enterprise work that's being done um, with traditional owners of the land or more marginalized communities, refugees, women's rights uh, in a country that has a 14% pay gap. So I always tell students, you know, you guys are pros at complaining and I love you for it because I used to be <laughs> like that too. You know, we'll complain left, right and center. So whoever said that quote that if you're not leaning left when you're young, you have no heart. And if you're not leaning right when you're old, you have no brain. There's, I think there's some truth in an element of that. And students, when they're young, they're great at pointing out the problems, you know, and you're, you're in uni, like you have so much time to think I've got 15 hours of class and then gosh, I should study. Like you've got so much time. So of course you're going to find problems and you're around different people. You have lots of time to think. I think it's a real beautiful part of our education system that we need to keep and nurture that time to think. And what this lets you do is say, rather than just point the finger, try to do something about it and actually say, okay, well, we can't fight the fact that banks have money and things cost money and that's kind of how our world works. How do we work with it? How do we bring it together um, in a really tangible way? I mean, that you, in the introduction, and thank you for it, you introduced me as, as lecturing at the University of Melbourne, which I do with a colleague, Julian, who he's incredible and we love what we do. Students, we get them to build a social enterprise in eight weeks. and a third of them to half of them are turning a profit. I mean, in that initial stages, they're not paying themselves, but we ask them to build that into their projections. But lots of them are turning a profit in a few weeks. They're out there and they're finding problems and they're saying, oh, I can maybe do something about that and trying the different models. It's amazing how much, how much real world progress students can make when it's, their eyes are lifted out of textbooks and off computer screens and you ask them to go out to the real world and talk to real humans. Uh, or animals or the environment, as much as one can talk to that. Um, the progress they make is amazing. And we don't feel like we have to force them to be passionate about it. Because we say, you're great at pointing out problems. Just pick one that you care about. Work on that. Yeah, I, w I also work with um, young change agents and we do that similar yeah. sort of thing out in schools, a much tighter time frame. But, yeah, it's just changing the conversations and changing the way that they're thinking and they're seeing and then they can even start looking at, okay, well, what, what, what's happening within the university instead of complaining about it? What are we going to do? Um, and expecting that someone's going to deliver it for us, how can we be much more proactive about changing the way things are? Definitely. And that's that proactive mindset that I think is, it's at the root of everything entrepreneurial. It's at the root of leadership. And a big part of what we're doing is trying to make that more accessible to everyone that if you're going to be a leader. You have to be able to lead yourself and, Leaders who blame their teams and teams who blame their leaders just spins us around in a circle and that's not really getting us anywhere. So rather than pointing the finger out, point the finger in. And yeah, that's, that was, and that's been one of my biggest learnings in building the business too, has been saying, look, you know, if this doesn't work, it's my responsibility and I've got to make me better before I can help anybody else unleash their potential. And in talking about your own business, your own enterprise, campus consultancy, how did you get started and why is the work that you're doing so important? Mm. And thanks for saying that. So how I got started, it's really funny. I always ask people how long they have. And I, I mean that, <laughs> I mean that somewhat, I think that's actually the whole point is it's, you know, if I go right back to like, as I grew up, my mom was a teacher for 39 years. 
Uh, she's retiring this year, has retired this year. Uh, she's taught in schools that scored in the zeroth percentile academically and financially of the state. And she taught kids with learning um, impairments, disabilities. So empathy was something that I didn't know the word for, but witnessed for my whole life. And that had a major influence. And mum was like, you can be anything you want to be, just don't be a teacher. And, <laughs> and my parents sure were enough, teachers too, and they said the same thing. <laughs> Surprise, surprise, right? So I think there's something to be said there for like the genetics and, and just nature and nurture, all that stuff. I think it's all wrapped up. Um, but when it came to starting the business, so even though I had no training in that, it was really, and what I tell students is find a real pro person with a real problem and bonus points if you're the person who's experienced that problem, like the scratch your own itch thing. Real person, real problem. That's it. So when I, there was no shortage of challenges, which is great. Entrepreneurs see problems as opportunities. But for me, I was working in recruitment after changing careers a few times and I kept going to university campuses to recruit students and I'd sit in rooms full of recruiters. It's the weirdest thing that students don't know recruiters do. All of them who are all competing for the same students sit in rooms together and talk about how there's no good students. And then I'd go to campus and I'd sit in rooms full of students and all of them would sit around competing for the same jobs, talking about how there's no good jobs. And so there was this huge gap. There were all these jobs. And all these students were really qualified. And what was what I one of the reasons I think they were being separated was even when they found the jobs, they weren't they didn't have the skills that employers were crying out for. So in 2020, your academics are great, but AFR reported at the end of last year, the top 100 graduate recruiters, that seven percent of employers rate academics or university grades as assessed and very important. Seven percent. Yet skills like teamwork, interpersonal skills, initiative and enterprise, emotional intelligence, leadership, all of these are right at the top of the list above academics. So students, I'll often say to students, how many hours of class did you have this week? 20. How many weeks per semester? 10. So that's 400 per year. How many years is your degree? Four. So you did 1600 hours of class and say class study, even if that's off by a couple of orders, 1600 hours on something that 7% of employers say is assessed. Yet no one's done 1600 hours of communication training. They might communicate, but they can communicate really badly. You know, no one's done 1600, very few people have done 1600 hours of teamwork. They might have done three group projects. So all of these skills that were turning away or preventing great students from all sorts of backgrounds getting all these jobs. Um, I looked back on my degree and thought no, I was never explicitly taught that. And I didn't know that it was up to me to get those skills. So even though I, I did, I chased them and I enjoyed it because being largely extroverted and social, I was kind of in those environments, but a lot of students who weren't naturally that way were just falling through the gaps. So I thought that's what I'll do. I'll start a business. I'll go after that. And I'll also try to make sure that, um, the skills I teach students are really beneficial for them to apply them where they are. So the application of the learning mattered. So I looked at student clubs, student societies, mentor programs, ambassador programs, residential colleges, anywhere where students weren't just a leader because it was a title, but they were a leader where they were really serving people, helping people and applying their skills. Because if you apply it, the engineer in me, it's like if you apply it, you can measure it. And if you can measure it, you can manage it. And so, that logic helped me reverse engineer well what's going wrong what skills are missing how can we teach them and then how can we keep iterating and improving 
so that was it. And then the business grew over the last few years um, with you know thousands of hours of work and weekends and nights and failed projects and hundreds of emails and all that sort of stuff to um, to where it is now with 26 unis and nearly 6,000 students as we worked with. So yeah, it's been a real privilege and an honor. Hopefully it keeps going. And, and a real entrepreneur's journey of the up and the down. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Or like on, on the daily, like I was joking with you before we got on this call, um, you were saying like, oh, how's the week? How's the month? How's the year? And I sort of said, yeah, you know, like even today I had clients call up and email in and say, look, what's happening with coronavirus is we're going to have to cancel some sessions because the university, I won't say which one, is sort of, you know, pulling back the reins. So when that happens, like that's that's my income. My income is running workshops for uni. So um, imagine if your boss sent you two emails today that said, you know, the equivalent of a, a week's pay for the month is uh, going to be taken away from you, uh, you know? And not even like taken away is like, it's rescheduled, everything's an opportunity, I get it. But that mindset of things can change in a second. Yep. Is, is something that is no one, yeah, I never learnt um, only through the books. So, yeah. yeah and and that sort of thing, that, that helps people build their resilience when they can experience it in a relatively safe environment. Like they're not, it's not do or die just yet. But, you know, it's okay, well, if you get refused, if you get the failure, if you get the feedback that it's not there, how do you then, you know, pivot with that? How do you then adapt and move on and grow? And resilience, it's great that you said resilience. In those, I was listing a few of the top five skills before. The employer data for this year, resilience is in the top five. It was interesting and like to the point where I've been looking into it, do you know where the, the word resilience come from, comes from? I'm sure I've read it somewhere, but it's not coming to me right now. <laughs> so I didn't know this until yesterday and I can only remember half of it. So I won't be too smug in this answer. Um, <laughs> the, first, the first bit re means to like to, to, to do again or to come back. Like when you say I'm going to redo something, like I'm going to do it again, or it sort of means again, something like that. And the resilience comes from another word that sounds like that, which means to bounce. So the whole idea is Your to bounce like bounce ability. back or like mm. bounce back from an obstacle. And so we know what resilience means, but I think what we forget there is to be resilient, you need to bounce back from an obstacle or a fall or a trip. Yeah. But you can't bounce back from something that never happened. So until things go wrong, by definition, you can't build resistance, resilience. Doesn't work. Like things like what we talk about, you need to, like you need to fail and it's like, or you need to be resilient and push through things. And it's like, no, no, you, you need things to have gone wrong to bounce back from them. And that was something that when I just looked at, like, what does this word really, really mean? Where does it come from? I thought, oh, that's interesting because we've always known in all of our work and workshops and teaching when you push students to do something that you know for them to win or for them to have five yeses, they're going to need to get 30 no's there's so much resistance in them to do that because they've, they've been brought up to never get a no. Like you got into this yeah. university by getting the answers correct on tests, more or less. You yeah. know? And, and even no- in the school, school environment, you know, if yeah. you get it wrong, you just like cut down as a failure and everyone beats you up over it. Yeah. So I read the other day, someone said, because I did largely math, science, things like that, things that had a definitive answer. And someone said, it's not a good question if there's an answer in the back of the book. And I love that. 
I thought, <laughs> huh, if I was to look at all the questions I was ever asked in school, I would guess 99% of them had an answer in the back of the book. And it just gave me, it gave me a moment to pause and reflect. And I thought, huh, because none of the answers I've ever asked in my career have had an answer in the back of the book. Yeah. And so I think with that is, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, there's a, there's a really interesting um, a comment that um, Carol Dwork, who does the, the growth mindset, talks That's about amazing. is, you know, with, with girls, they've, um, particularly they're taught, that, you know, one plus one is two, whereas the boys are tend to be called, uh, taught along the lines of one plus two might, oh, sorry, one plus one might equal two or it might equal something else. So they're much more attuned to looking at what are the variations, which when you think about once you get to decimals and everything else, one plus one may not equal two. But if we've always been taught that, then it's really hard to see outside that little box. Mm. I, I must admit, I might, I might have been in the girls' maths class because my maths was always <laughs> one plus one equals two. <laughs> um, but Ca- Carol's mindset, that book is amazing. It's on my bookshelf right now. I'm staring right at it. It's, um, it features in a lot of our training. Um, and actually helped. I ran a session on growth mindset for an Adelaide Women in STEM program last year. Um, and what, it was funny because, like, to, to mention that, like, the difference between how that information is disseminated it was so interesting in that, I mean, I went into a, de- a degree that was predominant, like male dominated, civil engineering, yep. went into the workforce, predominantly men. Um, and it wasn't until there was this like very dramatic mental health event on our site where a young man took his own life that they all brought us into a room and it was predominantly men. And a facilitator came in and said, all right, fellas, we're going to talk about our feelings. And a bunch of men literally wearing armor like let alone metaphorical armor physical armor like hard hat hard like like steel-toed boots like think of the language it's a hard hat steel-toed like this is like you might as well just call them like man clothes like it was (laughs) and they went into this room and these facilitators like all right fellas we're going to talk about our feelings and a whole bunch of blokes leant back and went "Mm -mm, no we're not Uh uh-uh not happening here and then like they were pros right changed my life these facilitators but what I saw them do and where I think if I was to dig into my own journey around becoming a facilitator, and that's what I do every day now uh, when the coronavirus doesn't stop me, is, um, is I saw these facilitators just get through and ask the right questions and the power of questions to the point where like not everyone in the room, but like enough people were like, yeah, I'm really struggling. And that how common that feeling was and that no one was talking about it. So I think there's, there's ways that, I mean, you know, and I shared growing up with my mom and that was her world. And she was obviously off the charts with emotional intelligence and some elements. Um, so I was always a kid who cried in the movies and all that sort of stuff and like quite emotional and not necessarily in control of it, but in touch with it. Um, so I heard these questions like, yes, I want to share, you know, I was like, me, pick me, let me tell you my story. Um, and it was just really interesting to see that, I hate the language, but like the feminine, quote unquote, side of masculinity. Um, and then to, to see that in different fields now working with people navigating careers from a female side, like I interviewed someone for the, po- for the podcast I was running and she's brilliant, like such a badass, runs multiple companies, has won every award there is. I think they're just creating awards now to give to her. 
And one of the <laughs> things that she told me was that because she was a female in engineering and she said the thing that got her was whenever she was in a room, she was often the only woman in the room. And the thing that was implicitly or explicitly said to her was her view represented the female view on any conversation. And that really stuck with me that like, I never think that I, I never thought that my view would be presented as the male view on something. So to like come up against that every day professionally, it's, it was, it's such an interesting thing when I, we talk about empathy to, to try to step into that and think, and really like to, to, and I don't think you get that until you go to uni and you get in the clubs and you meet people and you get in the workforce and you start to hear these stories. Um, and just, yeah, how powerful that can be. So I guess that's a big part of the work now is trying to create environments where people can, you know, they might learn growth mindset, but what we're really trying to do is, um, is to get people to be more vulnerable and open up a little bit. Um, yeah. But then when we leave the, uh, culture code by Daniel Coyle talks about a culture needs safety, vulnerability, and purpose. And what we're really trying to do is when we leave, we've modeled safety and vulnerability and help them find a purpose. So when we kind of step away, that's, that becomes how they do things. Um, which I'm a little bit off your track of one plus one equals two, but. Oh, that's okay. I'm all good. I'm very flexible. I go with things. Mm. It's, like it's actually really interesting because I was just talking to um, Lindley Lord from Curtin University earlier mm. today about that whole being the voice that represents, you know, all women when you're the only woman and, and that's something. So it's really interesting hearing that coming through again. Mm. But yeah. That's interesting. Okay. And, and even that's a good example of, and then so we can move on of like, I heard that from one person once and I talk about it all the time. But the fact that I had that conversation, I mentioned that to you and you're like, yeah, yeah, I talked about that today. Yeah. No, just like, it's, it's so always funny. a nice reminder to be like, you know, I can be all smug and be like, oh, look how, look how much I now understand that perspective. But you're like, no, no, this is like a daily thing. <laughs> always nice to be reminded yeah the limits of one's own view i think yeah yeah hmm. um so when we're talking about the work that you're doing with student leaders um and mm. so my understanding of what you are doing is you're working predominantly with the student leaders within the universities whether they're in clubs or in um you know representative councils but working with them to then benefit all students. So tell us a bit about how that works. Mm -hmm. So one of the values that we have is empower leaders to create change. So I think if we look at any social movement, any company, any nonprofit, any political movement, whatever you want to look at, that leaders for better or worse are the ones who set a vision and unite people and move them towards it. And it takes people to step up and sort of say, oh, we're going to change this for things to actually change. So where we, a lever that I thought we could really pull as an organization is to find students who are in leadership roles where they are actively applying these skill sets and then give them the skills to bring a whole bunch of people up with them. So for example, we go in and we work with a women in STEM club or women in business club or an engineering club or a Quidditch club and we help them by giving them the tools and the mindsets to build bigger and more effective communities that have more healthy cultures, they'll attract more people. So we're kind of in the gravity business 
like giving people the skills and mindsets to create gravity to attract their tribes and then all their tribes meet each other, make friends, social, educational outcomes, all sorts of different things. So that that's, was really the focus at the start. And then what that expanded into is a lot of different universities saying, oh, all these skills like mindset and communication and stakeholder management and teamwork and motivation, all of that stuff. Um, actually, a whole bunch of our students could benefit from that. And so now it's expanded into working in a lot bigger communities um, where some of our workshops are three, 400 people. Um, and sometimes they're working with a team of three people who lead a team of 15 who have a thousand members. So the, there's that real difference between are you empowering the leader who's pulling the lever or are you going straight to the source on the ground, working with Joey who wants to get a job at Victorian Public Service in 12 months when he graduates? So it's, I like the difference and I think there's, there's crossover between the two. Okay, well, that's really the questions that I had for today. Mm -hmm. So what would, is there something that you'd like to share us about what you're working on this year, what your um, aspirations are or any projects you've got on the ground? For me, the top kind of values of, that I believe in and that everything we do with campus aligns with is all around leadership as service and adding a whole lot of value. So where I think there's an enormous gap still that'll take a lot of us to try to fill it is we talk a lot about student experience, which is amazing. And there's so many students out there who are getting involved to help professional staff do it, whether they're volunteers at O-Week or they're mentors or they're ambassadors or they're club leaders, um, or they're the student in the third row who's just shows up to class with a smile on their face and makes that environment a little bit more friendly for the people around them. And I think there's the university model will fail if we rely on the old school degree and the universities that are starting to change their degrees to be focused around doing good, um, being more flexible in the ways that they let students take on work integrated learning or, um, like the internship model, whether that's online with something like Inside Sherpa or whether that's going out and working with nonprofits. I think there's a huge opportunity there and I think unis will fail if they don't recognise that each single student has the power to not only change their own life but really influence the people around them and that the ones who are stepping up into leadership roles, whatever they are, we need to invest in them like we're investing in staff in a professional workplace and you're an ambassador, here's a t-shirt, it's just not enough for the load that these students take on. Um, and when we do invest, the return on investment is enormous. If you wanna measure it at a bottom line, like bottom line dollars and cents, we know that students, if they have more positive conversations, if they have the skills, if there's a genuine passion, when they're at O-Week, when they're at a mentoring program, when they're representing a college, that they'll talk with authenticity and that'll attract future students um, as well as retain the ones they have. So I think we need increasingly some, if we're going to ask students, if we're going to tell students, Hey, the workforce wants people who work in teams, who have people skills and who show initiative and enterprise, then we really need to be modeling teamwork and people skills and enterprise. Um, and that this, I think the students are a lever for change. 
And if we give them the skills to do that, they'll come up with so many great ideas that, um, that we wouldn't our own. And classic example at RMIT, they're looking at the RMIT, one of their strategic objectives at whatever level, I can't remember, is to be the top esports university in the country. So, I mean, esports is something I barely understand. I'm 28. So if you're 40 or above and you're not like, you don't have kids who are teenagers, forget it. Like, it's just, I've never heard someone that age ever speak about it. Obviously you could, but it's huge. It's like these fast, I think it's the fastest growing sport in the world. Like it was at the, I was at the Australian Open yesterday and there was a stage dedicated to esports tennis with Call of Duty or something ridiculous like that. So the unis who are adapting and incorporating actually what their customers and students want, um, are just seeing tremendous growth. And I was with Kaplan Business School last week. They've just launched a University of Adelaide, so a group of eight university course taught out of a private business school in Melbourne. So a group of eight is in another state in a private business school. We're at an adapt or die stage. And I think that's, it's exciting. And the people who are excited by that and want to ride the boat or ride the wave um, are loving it. And just like the innovation on campus is amazing. But the old school wave, you know, we have our degree, our walls are made of sandstone, you know, it's always been this way. Just that terrifies me. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting. I've been talking to, um, a couple of um, Americans who, uh, you know, have moved to Australia, they're able to compare the two industries. And the one thing they say with the model in the States is that most of them really define themselves around a particular thing. So this is the university for X and this is the university for Y, mm. whereas in Australia we tend to be, we do everything and so does the next one and so does the next one. And we've been competing mm-hmm. on geographic variances but that's not the case anymore you know our reach is everywhere wherever you are so how do we then redefine ourselves so people can actually see that okay well this is the university that's for me and this one isn't or the other way around mm-hmm. and i was at a university in i can't remember if it was i think it was charles darwin it was charles darwin in darwin and we were talking about segmentation and innovation and one of the things they were saying was their largest student segment was um, online mature age female students. So when we talk about student experience, like I think any university in the country, if we were to look at what does our student experience look like in terms of online communities and how do you create the traditional O-week clubs, colleges, the Sydney UNSW, Unimel, Monash, that thing, how does that transform into an online community that people are as, as excited by as what they're doing on campus? Because gaming's done that. People are as pumped about esports as they were about Nintendo. Like they've done that. People are as pumped about being on Instagram and Facebook as they were hanging out at the lolly shop after school. Like technology has, is transitioning those things, dating, the Tinders and Hinges and whatever other apps that are out there, Bumbles. They're as excited about being on that as they were being bored at a bar making eyes. Like certain industries are modeling this really, 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 really well. And I think if education can crack it, someone can, especially in Australia, if a uni cracks, as you say, specialization, and we are only doing this, we're all in on this, we're world-class in this, coupled with if they crack 
online community management, mm. it'll be a game changer. So yeah, yeah it, want... it's that online community stuff is so hard and it's, and part of it, I think you're right, it's because we're still in the same mindset of how do we transition this to that rather than how do we actually, you know, give birth to something completely different. The, and that's, it's really interesting. It's so hard, yet Facebook does it and their customers, it's free. Yeah. Free to use Tinder. It's free to use Facebook. It's free to do a whole bunch of these things. We have customers that pay $100,000 a year. Like, it's, it's in the nice to have category, you know? Yeah. If it was a like, students need to give you a net promoter score of nine point, like nine out of 10 or plus whatever it is, or you have to shut down. Like if it was a must, uni said crack it, they'd put the money into it. They just hire the best coders. We'd stop sending them over to Google and Amazon and Facebook. They'd bring them in house. And it, oh, so last insight, and I'll stop ranting. I love this stuff. <laughs> is that one, a university in Melbourne has launched a program that the goal of the program is to hire the top, like cream of the crop of students and hire them at the university to work at the university. Brilliant. You've got all the best grads. Why are we sending them off to American companies? Why are we sending them off to the skyline firms, the banks and the consultancies? And nothing against them, but like, we've got a business to run in education. And it's like, we need the best. So like, let's not send them off. And I really don't think it's, it's even extrinsic motivation that is necessarily going to keep them. Not that we have a problem with that, but that's going to be a game changer. So I'm really interested over the next few years to see how that university innovates and capitalizes on having the best talent. And then they'll nurture them for the whole time they're at the uni. And so the third or fourth year when they're starting to graduate, you know, they thin them down, they get these students. Oh, how about working at the uni? Here's all the things we want to do. Yeah. Like, it's so clever. So, so clever. And I think we'll see unis do more of that because the engaged students, the ones who, you know, your union presidents and your spokespeople and on your boards, like, what if they stayed? Yeah. Yeah. Be interesting. It will be interesting. Mm-hmm. But- Thank you so much for joining us today, Josh. It's been really fun. Mm, thanks for giving me a space to think out loud, uh, number one, because uh, <laughs> that always helps my process. And number two, um, lovely to chat with you too. I'm really interested to see, I think the student experience as a concept for, yeah, a more open conversation is really interesting. Um, so I'm going to keep listening in and seeing who else you have on and what they, what's on the top of their mind and on the top of their list. So, yeah, I'm really excited to learn more about it too. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Cool. Lovely chatting with you. And that's the end of this episode of the Student Experience Podcast. I hope you can join us next week for another great interview.